Welcome to The Twelfth Story, a book discussion podcast produced by Cincinnati's Mercantile Library, where readers gather to engage, connect, debate, and discuss. The Mercantile Library is 181 years old and is the literary center of Cincinnati. Throughout the year, the Mercantile Library hosts authors and speakers, book discussion groups, and other civic events. We are a working library with more than 90,000 books available to members. We're located at 414 Walnut Street in downtown Cincinnati and online at mercantilelibrary.com. And we always welcome new members and guests. Joining us today in the lecture hall on the 12th story of the Mercantile Building are Mary Curran Hackett, a writer of novels including Proof of Heaven and Proof of Angels. Linda Maupin, former teacher and avid reader. Joe Hyde, attorney at Procter & Gamble. And I'm Abby Moran, Mercantile Library board member. And War and Peace enthusiast. Today we are discussing the final parts of War and Peace. We've been meeting as a group to discuss this masterpiece by Tolstoy. This was our fourth meeting with our just awesome group. I loved, loved, loved this group. Um, I want to give a quick summary of volume four and the epilogues, just to bring all of our listeners up to speed. Okay, in this volume four, Nikolai meets Princess Maria again and realizes that he loves her. Pierre is among six prisoners sent for execution and is pardoned. He meets Platon Karatev, another prisoner marching with retreating French forces. Petya Rostov joins Denisov's party in a raid on a French camp and is killed. Prince Andre dies. French, tro French troops, now a starving and diminished band of looters and thieves, retreat west out of Moscow, away from Moscow, as winter sets in. The Rostovs return to Moscow where Count Rostov dies. Pierre and Natasha marry, as do Nikolai and Princess Maria. The two families live happily with their children in the countryside. The story of these characters ends with epilogue one. The second epilogue is a long treatise on Tolstoy's vision of history. So, guys, we made it. Can you believe it? Yeah, yeah. it's wonderful. We're celebrating today with macaroons and other little treats that are uh, inspired by War and Peace, including raisins that Linda brought. And you'll have to read the book mm, yeah. to understand why she brought raisins. Aside from the fact that it was probably the easiest offering I could come up with. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes pressing the easy button is okay. Well, what did you think of this, of this massive, massive project, this massive book? Joe, what are your... Yeah, well, first on this final part, I mean, it was, it was 200 pages of, of book and then 100 pages of epilogue, um, which was interesting. Um, typical Tolstoy, as we've seen throughout these 1,000-plus pages, is glorious scenes in this book that will stick with at least me for the rest of my life. Uh, Prince Andre's death and the, oh. the dream nature of him yeah. as he fades and as Natasha is caring for him and Maria is caring for him. I mean, just glorious scenes. Um, Pierre's witnessing of the executions is just one of those uh, gut-wrenching scenes mm -hmm. and how he, how he as Pierre witnesses it and what it does to him and how he feels and, and, and to have that scene through his eyes and the same with his march as a prisoner uh, with the French troops and his getting to know this wonderful round peasant uh, named Platon, however we pronounce it, um, is again just stuff that, that is just some of the best writing in literature that I think you can read. Um, and then the, some of the happily ever after stuff at the end as well with, with what happens to these people. But just 
you know, in those 200 pages, um, Tolstoy get, delivers another wonderful treat for the reader, as well as a whole lot of historiography and sense of what it is that moves nations and what it meant to have the Russian nation invaded and the Russian capital burned and then the, the French troops um, repelled and who did that and how it happened and why it happened was all part of what he was trying to tell us about. And as we've talked about in the group, it was more about the truth of that than it was about mm -hmm. the factual accuracy mm -hmm. of every battle, although he does go into some mm -hmm. details in this book about different battles and different marching orders and how they were ignored, um, often with humor about how they, <laughs> this big battle was going to happen and then everybody forgot and they slept in, overslept, <laughs> yeah. and they had to do it the next day. But Kutusov didn't care because he didn't want the battle to happen exactly, anyway. Yeah. So um, that kind of folly is in this uh, last 200 pages. That kind of glorious hum humanism is in these last 200 pages. And then there's a whole lot of philosophizing at the end, which I think we all found a little uh, repetitive at the end of the second half of the epilogue. But um, wow, I mean, what, a, what an experience to go through. And the last thing I'll say is I finished this like three weeks ago and then had to get it back out last night. And I really missed it. I mean, I felt like I had mm -hmm. spent a lot of time mm -hmm. with a really good friend mm -hmm. and then hadn't seen him in a couple of weeks mm -hmm. and then picked it up again and, and then flipped through this part and remembered what a, what a wonderful time, you know, what a, an amazing journey it was. And um, again, I, I kind of missed it. So I, I you know, I, I imagine I'll read this again uh, when I miss it too much, not to pick it up and read it again. I just think the way that we've experienced this book through community by talking about the various details that meant so, so much to each of us individually and then that kind of collective recall of various events. I think it was a stunning way to shake hands with a book that I've been studiously avoiding for a, <laughs> a very long time. I, I just was laughing at myself because in all of my romantic ideals, I had hoped that Andre would live and Natasha and he would marry, but of course that didn't happen. But at the moment of Andre's death, I was very much taken with Tolstoy's insights at that particular last breath and Maria and Natasha were there and Maria says, is it over? After his body had already lain motionless before them for several minutes, growing cold, and then later, where has he gone? Where is he now? And at the very end of that part, um, the two women are left uh, weeping, but Tolstoy is quick to point out why. They did not weep from their own personal grief, they wept from a reverent emotion that came over their souls before the awareness of the simple and solemn mystery of death that had been accomplished before them. And it's just the way he brings that moment into that spectacular insight of the mystery of the threshold between life and death. I, I just... I, I remember getting to the last period and uh, and writing, wow, just that that's what I this book has done remember. to me over and over and over again. I did the same thing, and then I also noted that I had an ugly cry. Oh, um, oh my God, on I that, can't stop. On that same page. <laughs> on that page, that I wrote ugly. I usually take a personal note of, like, uh -huh. physical reaction yeah. because oh. I did. I felt an overwhelming sense of... Um, 
like they did, a reverent loss and grief. But then the juxtaposition of the next line when the next part is the totality of causes of phenomena is inaccessible to the human mind. But the need to seek causes has been put into the soul of man. And mm -hmm. I thought there's mm -hmm. no other time than mm -hmm. um, when someone dies that we say, mm -hmm. why? Mm -hmm. And yeah. so, and it is like the artist's journey to figure out not just why people die, but why are we here? And then it goes all the way to the end where Pierre goes, I, you know, where you read the, the end, like why? You know, mm -hmm. the why doesn't matter anymore. Um, I'm here um, because God has put me here and that this is my life. And um, as long as there is life, there is happiness or there mm -hmm. is hope. Um, and light, mm -hmm. and I, it just kept coming over in waves and waves and mm -hmm. beautiful moments. Um, that was really, it was really touching. There's so many times that I wrote the words "wow," um, and not just in, at um, the death scene, but um, the moments with Platon in the prison. Um, I was really moved. I was shaken up actually with the um, when Platon is shot. Mm -hmm. um, he's weak, he's sick, he's no longer able to go on, and the, the answer is simply to kill him. And do you remember the, the puppy he was with all yeah. the time? Mm -hmm. Then goes off, off and starts, starts following somebody else. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's, again, that's Tolstoy's detail. There's details like mm -hmm. that throughout this book of this dog that he loved and that came to symbolize so much to him, his master is dead. And so the dog rushes off and starts following but somebody the, else. And life goes and on. And life goes on. on. I mean, it was just... But it's the howl that the dog yes. 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 lets yes. loose when when Platon dies that mm -hmm. reminded me actually of Odysseus coming back to Ithaca after his he's gone forever and his old dog is about to kick the bucket and he's right there at the gate. Argos, I think, is the dog's name. And he recognizes his master and he wags his tail and then he dies. And it their animals permeate this book. Mm -hmm. I mean, the whole the whole metaphor of the retreating army being like a wounded animal, yes. and and it really has caught my attention because it's somehow the ferocity of an animal is taken away when it is hurt and vulnerable, and I think we see that all over this book that when the enemies get together they really cut to the chase and see each other for who he is and all his vulnerability. And they get on well. So why are they killing each other? You know, it gets back to that well, again and, that's, and again. That goes back to 1222 in the appendix of the epilogue, <laughs> <laughs> of which I did read and yeah, annotate. I know. Why <laughs> can't you? Why did millions of men set about killing each other? Uh, if it has been known ever since the world began that it is both physically and morally bad. And um, when I read that, it was gut-wrenching because the question, why? I mean, is it's layered and layered and layered in there. Why are we here? Why are we doing this? We all, many Christian men, he says at one point, know it's bad, but we send them out to fight and do this, and they get along, mm -hmm. like if they were mm -hmm. not on the battlefield, yes. if they were mm -hmm. sleeping in, and the night before we're sharing mm -hmm. vodka, which Pierre mm -hmm. does with the Frenchman mm -hmm. in his own home, 
that they were all human and that they're connected and yet we cannot get past our ideologies. We have these supposed great men telling us what to do and then we, 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 we infuse power to these men because um, he even says that in the appendix about the, the will to power is brought on by the people who give the power to the Napoleons or the Alexanders and then we're just, we, we just move um, forward without really thinking about it, without thinking of the consequences. And meanwhile, you know, in the, in the micro sense, we are all just human beings sharing bread or in communion with each other. And he has that great touch uh, providing those really human little essential details that remind you of just the insanity of the larger action that's mm -hmm. occurring. One thing that really stuck mm -hmm. with me is the execution scene that Pierre oh. witnesses and the convict that is getting executed before him it keeps scratching his leg. He's yeah. scratching his leg with his foot, I think. Mm -hmm. And he's still in his body and he's, he's trying to make himself comfortable and adjusting his body. And meanwhile, it's about to end for that man, it's, you yeah. know, within the next minute or two. And I, I thought that juxtaposition of just that daily, the daily itches of life with his soon trip into the whatever comes next was so was so powerful and and Tolstoy does that throughout the book where he just brings you this bodily human detail that reminds you that we're all in it together that while our lives here in 2016 Cincinnati are so different from this imperial Russian setting of the early 1800s, there's something essential that unites all humanity. And he I think we're lucky that there are artists like Tolstoy who take on these questions yeah. and help us consider them, pull us out of, you know, pull our heads up out of our daily concerns, our daily little worries, you know, am I going to make it to the dentist on time? You know, did I return that email? You know, what is my future? In my in my job, all these little little things that we're consumed with that chew us up um, are just so insignificant, and and we see that through this work of art. He calls them um, the involuntary, simple-hearted, and most legitimate questions that mankind poses for itself. What does it all mean? Why did it happen? What made these people burn houses and kill their own kind? What were the causes of these events? What force made people act this way? Act this way? I just that's on 1180 in the epilogue. And then on 1118, he brings, okay, so that's the philosophical, the yes. universal, and the bringing, it's like a huge umbrella. But then um, in moments, um, human moments, it's, um, he, he show, it's the epitome of all of that. When Pierre is in prison, he, is, um, he suffers, he loses everything he has, he's thrown off his habitual, you know, paths. And on 1118, Pierre... Um, reconciles with this and he, he reflects and he says, they say misfortune, suffering, said Pierre. Well, if someone said to me right now this minute, do you want to remain the way you were before captivity or live through it all over again? For God's sakes, captivity again and horse meat. Once we've mm -hmm. thrown off our habitual past, we think all is lost, but it's only here that the new and good begins. As long as there's life, there's happiness. There's much, much still to come. I'm saying that to you. And, um, and like you said, we all actually experienced that. We threw off our habitual paths, our regular reading, where we ate lunch, like how, who we talked to. 
And, um, and that's what happens with great literature. That's what happens with art. That's what happens when you leave behind everything that you think is so essential and so important in your everyday. And you leave that all behind and you, and you confront the truth. And, um, and things can change and goodness can happen. Um, and, but we can't see that when we're on that rat wheel, just going over and over, doing the same thing over and mm -hmm. over again. So I just, I thought it was almost like a religious experience, to be honest with you, to read this book in so many ways. I, I think you feel the same. I don't know. And I do feel like I've lost, I, when the book was over, I was like, why is everybody going on in the world? <laughs> <laughs> like nothing happened. Yes. Yeah. You still got to do <laughs> and dishes like, and you still got to make your bed. And, yeah. Um, it's, it's true. It's I mean, weird to pull your head up out of it, isn't it? And then, yeah. And then confront something that is so 2016 or mm -hmm. so would have been done by a surf. <laughs> <laughs> in this book, you know? Yeah. But then, oh, at the same time, have wisdom now from yes. Tolstoy to apply to it, yes. to transform your thinking about it, um, your, your daily interactions with your children or your, or your life uh -huh. or, or your art or your community or your world. I mean, I, 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 it was almost impossible to watch the news in the yes. same way. It's almost impossible to... Like we had said in the group, I think it should be required reading for every politician. Yeah, I, you know... I, there are a couple things about the way that um, Pierre interacts with people after he's had his awakening, and he makes people feel so listened to. He's really listening, and he is extending love to them and finding them mm -hmm. lovable as a result. And I had a conversation the other day with someone who is just kind of combative as a reflex, like on little, little points. And I um, was just, I just wanted to press those paragraphs into that mm -hmm. person's hand, you know, like it, it, there's, it's just, you can get so much further with, with people and with life and be so much happier if you can embrace that, that temperament and that, because, you know, the, those passages are fascinating how people are just magnetically attracted to Pierre once he is like that. Before mm -hmm. he was so uncomfortable and kind of fearful and fretful and people shunned him almost involuntarily because he was so uncomfortable to be around. But then when he has this more loving attitude and is extending that just extending that grace to people they just flock to him i loved that section with count Wolarski when they're in the car they're they're riding in the carriage together Which count Wolarski is the old mason and he's complaining uh, uh he's his old he, i don't know that he's old but they've known each other for a long time they knew each other through the masons and it's on 1108 okay. um and he he's um He's the Polish man who kind of in, uh, introduced him to the Masons or, mm -hmm. or was his sponsor. Mm -hmm. And Pierre's sharing a ride with him. All through his convalescence in Oral, um, Pierre had experienced a feeling of joy, freedom, life. But when, during his journey, he found himself in the open world and saw hundreds of new faces, that feeling increased still more. All through the journey, he experienced the joy of a schoolboy on vacation. All persons, the coachman, the station master, the musics on the road or in the villages, everything had a new significance for him. The presence and observations of Wolarski, who constantly complained about the poverty, the backwardness compared to Europe, the ignorance of Russia, only enhanced Pierre's joy. Where Wolarski saw deadness, Pierre mm -hmm. saw the extraordinary mighty force of vitality, that force which, in the snow over this vast expanse, maintained the life of this whole special and united people. He did not contradict Wolarski, and as if agreeing with him, since pretending, pretending to agree was the shortest means of avoiding an argument that could not lead any 
anywhere. Listen to him with a joyful smile. To me, that scene felt that scene felt so real. And and after that part, Maria and Natasha are discussing Pierre, and I just this this metaphor describing Pierre as he's become somehow clean, smooth, fresh, as if from the bathhouse. You understand morally from the bathhouse, hasn't he? You know, it's like he's been cleansed with some kind of spiritual soap that that enables him to settle down to what is really important. And that cleansing came, as we talked about, from his privation, from his, mm-hmm. his witnessing the executions, from his meeting Platon. Um, another motif that comes yeah. to an end in this section is his friendship with Prince Andre, which mm-hmm. is one of my favorite parts of this yeah. book. We talked in an earlier podcast, I think, about that conversation he had with Andre in the first part that I like so much, where they're talking about the why question. Why are we here? Mm. What are we doing here? What does it mean to be a good man or a good person? What does it mean to lead a good life? And they're in very different places. They renew that conversation the night before the Battle of Borodino, where Andre is basically ready to die. He almost hopes he's going to die. And, of course, Pierre's just there to see what's going on. Right. Here I am in my white hat. I kind of want to check it out. And, what's going on and, and again, they have a very uh, wonderful, short, shorter conversation, but, again, just about what are we doing here? And, and Andre even says at that point, I feel like Adam who's eaten the apple. He, he makes a reference to, I've seen too much. I've seen too much of the folly of man. I'm basically ready to die. And then it comes full circle at the end. It's one of my favorite lines in this section of the book, certainly, where Prince Andre has died, and of course, Pierre wasn't there, but he's asking Maria and Natasha how it went at the end, and it's the bottom of, of 11.13. And Pierre is very interested in how his good friend Andre, whether he found peace at the end. And so he's asking, so did he calm down? Did he soften? And then here's the line. He always sought one thing with all the forces of his soul to be fully good so that he could not be afraid of death. The shortcomings that were in him, if there were any, did not come from him. And, and so he softened, and then he says, what a happy thing it was that he met you to Natasha. And he always sought one thing with all the forces of his soul to be fully good so that he could not be afraid of death. Another one of those wow moments for me. It's like, okay, that kind of summarizes a lot of, a lot of things for me about what it is. You know, he's, again, this is Pierre after he's been through everything saying, what is it that I wanted for my friend? What is it that I wanted for this best friend that I had? What I want for myself is to be fully good, to be someone who, who is good in the world. And what, what, what fear would you have of death then if that's the kind of life, if that, that's the kind of person you become? And he wants that for his his former best friend. So again, it was one of those wow moments moments in the end of this book. And the realization of a friend knowing, I thought what was so touching was he knew his friend so well. Mm. He knew what troubled his soul and his soul, his friend's soul was tortured by the idea of being good. Of not being good enough. I'm not, I'm not being Andre good enough. Andre was all about not being, he was and, never good enough in his and, own And life. now, <laughs> because we have the benefit of like psychology or whatever, we're like, well, granted, look at the dad he <laughs> had. Yeah, you know, right, right. No. And we could say, well, we can understand where that struggle came no from. No mother. No mother, <laughs> always trying to do the right thing, watching his poor sister suffer at the hands of his dad and always, always trying. Mm-hmm. I, I, he was one of my favorite characters. Um, and I felt that was so, and I loved that Pierre 
wanted to know, yes. you know, like I just loved that because I was hoping, I guess if he was going to die, I was like, oh, there'd be some sort of like way Pierre and him can have their moment. Mm -hmm. um, and, but that's not real either. Like, but he had the moment with Maria yeah. and Natasha and he extends healing to them yeah. too. Just yeah. that, that he's asking those things that he provides them with the opportunity to talk about it and to have that emotional release. You know, Natasha's face twitches and she, her eyes are full of tears it's so powerful for her to understand that Pierre, that Pierre really did understand Andre. Yeah. And I'm sure that that is, that's an essential piece of Natasha and Pierre being able to be together is that Pierre respects and understands Andre. They shared that. They shared that. And they were yeah. both in some ways transformed. I mean, totally. Natasha is transformed by the caretaking of Andre, and, and also by her recognition of how she hurt him and her, her indiscretions, like right. if, if you'll call them yeah, that. Yeah, through but your faults, faults and your flaws, flaws, that's how you reach that common humanity. That they, they all had failed in some ways um, and been less than good in their mind, but they had all stri strived to be better um, human beings. And that constant struggle to be better, to um, find the beauty in life in the everyday, I just... There's ev every page had a moment like that where you took your What did you away. think about the resolution of the storylines with the two marriages? So Nikolai marries Princess Maria and Natasha marries Pierre. What did you, did you find that satisfying? Did you find it frustrating? Well, I think I said at the end of the last podcast, I really wanted something good to happen for Pierre. So yep. something good happens. Yep. He, he does get married to the woman he's loved for 600 pages. Um, and for years, and they're both worthy of each other, uh, and they have a family. What I thought was interesting about that very point is on page 1144 in the epilogue, when N Nikolai and Maria look at each other and decide they're going to do this, Tolstoy puts this dot, dot, dot for two or three yes. lines. It's almost like he's saying, yeah, and that was like yada, yada, yada in <laughs> 1852 or whatever. He's, he's saying, yeah, and they're going to get married, everything's going to turn out. I, I just thought that was Tolstoy himself saying, Okay, I'm going to give you people your happy ending, yeah. <laughs> and, and these two are going to get married, mm -hmm. and they're going to have babies, and everything. And and it's like, wow, that that was pretty kind of a modernistic thing yes. for him to do, is because nowhere else does he use that yeah. convention of all these dot dot dots across two lines of text. Um, so yeah, they you kind of knew Nikolai and Maria were going to get together, and I felt good for Maria because she, the long suffering Maria, finally found I hope some some peace and some happiness. Uh, she clearly was in love with Nikolai. Nikolai, I'm not sure, was deep enough to feel the kind of love she felt mm -hmm. in the way he's portrayed in this book and the way he admits to himself in this book several times that he's not a terribly deep person. Mm -hmm. uh, but he gets his financial stability he's looking for, and she gets a husband and a father for her children and happiness and all that, you know, because Mario was kind of pretty long-suffering before that mm -hmm. moment. But I just thought that was interesting. But he becomes this pillar of... Russian dedication to his estate and to making it perfectly work. And uh, it's as if pieces kind of fall, shatter into place, you know, that, that there's resolution. Yes. Um, it might not be like the perfectly suited couple mm -hmm. or our, uh, the way he treats women and serfs might not conform mm -hmm. to our 21st century ideals, but he does, he is like a model landowner 
right? That, isn't he the one that yes. they say, that he, Tolstoy says, like, in generations, in the future generations, really remember him as a great master? Yes, and he was he, a great yes. master. And he, he resolved not only his all of um, uh, the family debts, but he manages to pay Pierre back in the mm-hmm. loan that he gave him. So it's like he comes all the way up out of that kind of sort of debauched way of life into something mm-hmm. new. Um, and isn't it Andre's son who reveres Pierre? Yes. yes. And not Nick, uh, not Nikolai. He reveres Pierre. So uh, that's all true. There was one other thing I just wanted to add, though, again, in the nature of a spoiler alert. I made a list of six people who I wanted to know what happened to, and we didn't find out what happened to them. <laughs> oh, oh even, wow. even with a hundred and some pages of epilogue, and generally epilogues are where you find out what happened to everybody, right? And that is one of the things we talked about that tells me he maybe was going to write some more. But uh, I'll just go through it real quick. Again, spoiler alert for those who haven't read the book. Anatole Karagin, did he yes. die? Mm-hmm. Did he live? Oh, what happened? You know, gosh. his leg was did chopped off. Did he have VD? <laughs> did he finally reform himself? I assume did he, he died. Repent? Mm. So I don't know about him. Uh, Dolokhov, who was doing quite well as a mm-hmm. partisan guerrilla mm-hmm. fighter and haven't seemed, seemed to be mm-hmm. right up his alley, did he go all the way to Paris with the Russian army? Did he... Mm. Um, you know, what happened to his life, because Dolokhov was a very interesting character in this mm-hmm. book, I think. Um, old Prince Vasily Karagin, oh, who yes. starts the book in the very first pages and is throughout, you know, his dopey eldest son, Ippolit, or whatever. What happened to them? Oh, I loved Prince Vasily as a character. You know? yeah. yeah, and did he oh, lose all of his holdings in Moscow when it burned? Oh. And what happened to him? Um, you know, Sonia, we talked about a lot in our mm-hmm. discussion, is long-term, does she ever find happiness? Does she ever ever marry off? I assume not. I assume she lives her whole life sacrificing herself for the Rostov family. But uh, And then, remember the older sister yes, Rostov? Yes, that's what I was wondering. Countess about. Vera? Yes. Who marries Ver yes. early on? Yes. And, and they, they go off and they had to, their soirees that were just like... Home, <laughs> and they have a soirée that's just like everybody yeah, else's yeah, soirée. Yeah. And they're so and reassured by that. Exa- and Vera's nowhere. Her right. dad passes yes. away. All these things happen. It's like, almost like Her, he forgot about Vera. It's like he forgot about Vera. And <laughs> I wondered what was going to happen to Vera. So, And the last one was the whole um, Julie Karag and yes. Boris Drubitskoy yeah. couple. Mm-hmm. I kind of wanted them to not do well. You know? yeah. <laughs> um, but we didn't know what happened to them. So anyway, uh, you won't find that if you read all... 1,200 pages of this plus the second appendix. Uh, well, Joe, maybe you need to them. write the next. So yes, there's the next. A exactly. There's a I sequel. said we need a sequel. Oh there's my gosh, a Mary right there. or Joe, I think you know we could get. <laughs> there your is book not enough that. vodka in Russia <laughs> for me to, to write a sequel. But thank you, Abby, for bringing us together. Yes, yes, it was wonderful. It was a wonderful experience. Wonderful. We just, I loved it, and I loved reading it in community with people. And that's one of the my favorite things about the Mercantile Library is that it does provide a space for us to just discuss ideas and laugh together and bounce, you know, bounce reactions off of one another. I think it's it's a really special place. So thank you all for joining um, this project. It was really okay. very meaningful for thank me. Thank you, Abby, for organizing. Yes, it was amazing. Yes. Thank you. Oh, and thank you, listeners, for joining us on this podcast. Uh, maybe you've been reading along at home while you listen, or maybe you're inspired to pick up a little Tolstoy after after listening to us. We really, um, we really appreciate you joining us on the Twelfth Story. We encourage you to sur- subscribe to other Twelfth Story podcasts um, about all sorts of books. 
Um, you can subscribe via your preferred podcast app. We're available on the iTunes Store and on SoundCloud. If you like listening, tell your friends or tweet a, tweet to us at Mercantile Lib. That's Mercantile L I B. Today's podcast was directed and engineered by Chris Messick. Special thanks to our guests, Mary Curran Hackett, Linda Maupin, Joe Hyde, and I'm Abby Moran. The Twelfth Story is a production of the Mercantile Library in downtown Cincinnati. Our theme music was created by Doug McDermott. Don't forget to visit us online at www.mercantilelibrary.com where you can learn about our library and our upcoming events. Have a great week.